Good morning. If you, uh, well, for those of you who are around uh, the kids at this church, um, they jokingly refer to me as a diva because uh, I need, I'm, I guess I'm needy. Uh, I, especially at youth group, when it's hot and we're starting to play games, I like to pull out a fan because I'm a grown man and I don't smell good when I sweat. I don't want to sweat. I, I just, um, and so they like to tease me about being a diva and here I am moving stuff because I just need more space. Um, I'm Zach. I'm the associate minister here if you're visiting this morning and uh, it's my privilege to get to preach the wonderful text of Romans 8. Where do you go when you have failed for the thousandth time? Where do you go to find strength when you are overcome by your own weakness, when you are entangled by your own sin? Where do you turn when your shortcomings are inescapable, when you are too impotent, too powerless to overcome your own sin or helpless to fight off the senseless suffering that you seem to face when you are at the end of your rope seeing your own weakness your own wretchedness what will you do or what do you do these are the kinds of questions that we should be asking having just passed through the stormy waters of romans 7 last week paul ends asking this question who can save me from my body of death And who can save you from yours? Romans 8 will show us the answer. That in Christ, sin and suffering don't stop, but they don't sting. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this church. Thank you for the people of Prairie View, for those who are... um, regularly here and and all that they do for those who maybe have come through the doors for the first time this morning or are back for the first time in a while thank you god that you have um, brought us together uh, this very morning in this place to sing songs together to take communion with one another to give an offering to encourage one another Um, god i pray that as i preach from your word that you would give me clarity uh, and as i speak Clearly, that our hearts, that our minds would receive it clearly, and that you would work by the power of your Holy Spirit to sow the seeds of your word in our hearts and to, to start affecting change on, on us. God, I thank you, and, and I'm counting on your promise that your word does not go out and return void, but that when it is spoken, when you have said it, it will accomplish what you intend for it to accomplish. And I'm also counting on the power of the Holy Spirit, who you've given to us to convict us of the truth, to convict us of sin, to teach us about your Son, Jesus Christ, as he's been revealed to us in your word. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Now, like I said a minute ago, it truly is a privilege to be preaching to you this morning. And I I say that every time I preach because I mean it, but especially this morning with this particular text. Romans 8 is arguably the most magnificent part of any of Paul's writings, maybe even the entire Bible. Paul weaves together these different theological ideas, and it looks, as you read it, as if his soul, his heart just burst. They just erupt with praise. He cannot contain himself. 
Yet on either side of Romans 8, as Joshua mentioned earlier this morning, there is some serious interpretive difficulty. Ben mentioned some of the difficulty last week with Romans 7, and I imagine we'll mention more next week as we look at Romans 9, 10, and 11. And so I say this only a little, a little tiny bit jokingly, but, but what he did was a wonderful act of grace and mercy and generosity um, to not only not take this opportunity for himself to preach Romans 8, but he didn't stick me with Romans 7 or Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, I've read somewhere that every part of the Bible is like a star in the sky, beautiful and remarkable in its own right, worth studying and worth observation. And yet, some stars are more useful than others. That is the case with Romans 8. Romans 8 is the north star in the spectacular starry sky of God's word. It's written about those who are in Christ. Look with me at the first two verses of Romans 8. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what does it mean to be in Christ? It's going to be very important for us to understand that if we're going to understand Romans 8. And we aren't going to find an explanation of what it means to be in Christ here because Paul has already articulated this earlier in his letter to the Romans. Paul, around Romans chapter 5, begins his argument, begins to show us that justification, right? Justification being the opposite of condemnation. Justification comes as a result of union with Christ. If you're... In, a, in your Bible, uh, you can glance back with me to Romans 5, 12 through 21. Uh, you might have a subheading there that says, Death in Adam, Life in Christ. Uh, here, Paul begins explaining how death reigned in Adam. Ben preached on this a couple weeks back. That is, all who are in Adam die as a result of Adam's sin. We can find something very similar uh, in another one of Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians, where he, he says, by birth, our very nature, by our very nature, we are des- as descendants from the very first man, we are destined to die. Paul is proving that the actions of one can represent the many. My favorite practical illustration of this is from the Bible itself, and it's the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. I won't tell the story of David and Goliath. I imagine you are all familiar with it. If you are not familiar with the biblical story, you at least understand what it means to be a David or a Goliath. But in that story, one man, David, wins victory for all of Israel with one decisive act. The entire army of Israel was victorious in David. Now, turning our attention back to Romans Paul develops the idea of union with Christ further in chapter 6. I promise we will get to chapter 8 this morning. But in chapter 6, if, again, you have an open Bible, in verse 3, he says, We are baptized into Christ and baptized into his death. Not only that, Paul continues in verse 5, But having been united with him in death, we shall also be united with him in resurrection. So we have the past, we have baptism, we have death, and we have the future. Resurrection. And we have the present 
further on in Romans 6.11. He says, you are alive to God in Christ Jesus right now. So how is it that sinners like you and me can be united to Christ? It's by receiving Christ's sacrificial work by faith. If any of the encouragement that follows in Romans 8 is going to be true of you, you must first be found in Christ. Fortunately, the cleansing blood of Christ is a gift of grace. And if you want it, God will not keep it from you. Now you might say, all this talk about union with Christ is great, but how can I know that I'm united to Christ? After all, Christ is not a costume that you can climb into. He's not a land where you can settle down after you've converted or a building, a palace, a castle to stay in. He's a person. And he's a person who we've never seen and cannot see or at least cannot expect to see anytime soon because he's in heaven. Look at verse 9 with me. This is Romans 8. We we really are getting to Romans 8 this morning. It says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to read verse 10. Just verse 9. If you want to know whether or not you are in Christ, examine your life for evidence of the Spirit of God dwelling in you. This is the crux of Romans 8. This is the heart of it. It's the linchpin. Everything revolves around this. That You can be sure, you can be sure that you are in Christ if the Spirit of God is in you. But... Again, you might pump the brakes, you might protest, you say, that doesn't really solve anything. And in a way, you would be right, because I've only explained one mystery with another. Explaining union, union with Christ, which is something you can't see, by the Spirit of God dwelling in you, which is also something you can't see, doesn't really get us anywhere. But the mystery of the indwelling Spirit is not so mysterious as we will see shortly in Romans 8. So look with me then at Romans 8, picking back up with verse 3. We're going to read verse 3 down through verse 13. And as you listen and follow along, try to identify the evidence of the indwelling Spirit of God. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, 
to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what evidence, according to Romans 8, should you look for if you want to see the Spirit of God at work in you? Look back at verse 13. Are you putting to death the deeds of the body? If you're not sure, then let's allow Paul to help us. In Galatians 5, a letter also written by Paul, beginning in verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In Colossians 3, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he proceeds to give a list very similar to what we find in Galatians 5. The question isn't whether you recognize any of these sins in your life. If you don't recognize them, then you've probably been spending too much time by yourself. If you spend time with somebody, anybody, you will see enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, and things like these. The question isn't whether you recognize any of these sins in your life, but what are you doing with them? The appeal of Romans 8 is to put your sins to death. Put them to death. Your sin is not like a garden that will die if you neglect it long enough. You cannot ignore your sin away. You must put your sin to death. You must hunt it down. It's like a vicious animal stalking around in the night. If you choose to just ignore it, you will not realize that it is destroying everything around you until it's too late. Do not ignore your sin. Do not brush your sin off. Put your sin to death. If you want to know that you are in Christ, look at your life and tell me, tell yourself, If you are putting your sin to death. Now look with me once again at Romans uh, 8 verse 4. It says in order that the righteous requirement. um, It's saying Jesus came. The son of God came in flesh and died. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk according to not according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. The only way to put your sin to death is to walk in the spirit. And to walk in the Spirit, you must be filled by the Spirit. And if you are filled by the Spirit, then you belong to Christ. And the righteous requirement of the law, death for sin, has already been fulfilled for you by him on the cross. You are not righteous because the Holy Spirit is in you and you are now living up to the law. Jesus makes you righteous and then he gives you his Holy Spirit so that you can put your sin to death. There is no condemnation, remember verse 1, which is very good news because you will battle sin every day for the rest of your life. Sin does not stop when you become a Christian. The sin that is ingrained in your bones will wage war against the spirit of God inside of you until the day you die. If you were here last week, You may recall hearing about my disagreement with Ben over the interpretation of Romans 7. Uh, Romans 7 is about the inward battle between serving God and serving sin. Now, I firmly believe that Paul is writing about his own present experience when he is saying those things, that as a Christian, he is struggling against his flesh. Ben believed, I think he said, 
I think last I heard was 55-45. So 55% lean in that uh, Paul was actually writing about someone before they're saved, someone who is not in Christ, which means Ben, what is it, 65-35? Okay, well, then I'm going to have to change what I'm about to say. I was going to say that Ben is only 55% wrong, but now he is 65% wrong. Um, Now, whether you read it like Ben or you read it like me, Romans 7 makes it plain that the seeds of sin are deeply sown. That this is a fight you will fight your entire life. And you can only hope to win if you are walking in the Spirit. And you, and you will win. Man, I did not anticipate getting emotional. You will win. If the Spirit of God is in you, you've already won. I need this. I need this truth that you don't need to be perfect. You never will be perfect. You will never be so holy and so spirit-filled that sin no longer inflicts your soul. But if the Spirit of God is at war within you to defeat your sin, then you've already won. The Spirit of God is in you, even though your flesh is weak, even though you give in to sin, Even though you cry out with Paul that you are a wretch, you have won. Look at verses 14 through 17 with me. And while you follow along, see if you can find how Paul speaks about your future if you are in Christ. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The Spirit of God within you isn't only good for putting your sin to death, although it is absolutely good for that. The Spirit of God within you is the official stamp of God. It is the seal of God that claims you not only as a king might claim a servant, but as a father claims a child. You belong to him. So not only have you been justified, not only are you not condemned to eternal death for your sins, but you have been adopted as a child of God with an inheritance of glory in Christ. Let's keep going with verses 18 through 24, the beginning of verse 24. Uh, And as we go, we're going to see the role of suffering that it plays on the road to glory. Uh, And while we're reading, I want you to take special note of what it means for creation to be subjected to futility and to see how the Bible fits together a little bit better. That the word here that we're going to read about is the same word that is used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, then you know it is the Eeyore of the Bible. It is bleak. There is not a lot of good news in Ecclesiastes. The wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Justice can't be found. Nothing works the way it ought to. So carry that idea into Romans 8 here as you follow along. Excuse me. It says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Sons and daughters, as children, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Suffering is a part of this futile world. Sometimes you will suffer because of your sin. Sometimes you will suffer because of your righteousness. Sometimes you will suffer for what seems to be no reason at all, like an ill child Or a fire burning everything you own. There are strains of Christianity that claim that if you are suffering, it is a sign of weak faith. That if you are poor, it's because you haven't asked God for money with enough faith. That if you are sick, there must be some hidden sin that you need to confess or some prayer with enough faith that you can say that will force God to answer you affirmatively. To avoid the risk of using language uh, too strong and maybe inappropriate from here, I just want to say that such teachings are straight from hell. They are false. Christians have their eyes and hearts in the heavens. Absolutely. We are looking to a city that's not here. We're looking to Christ's return, and our heart should be there. But our feet and our hands are still very much here on earth. We are looking to something beyond and greater, but we still understand that life here is still life here. Christians, those who are in Christ, will still sin and will certainly still suffer. Muhammad Ali, I bet you didn't know he was coming into this sermon. Muhammad Ali, the celebrated boxer, was a masterful trash talker. Uh, He had a way with words and he had a braggadocious spirit that he wasn't afraid to let them just fly. And there's a well-known quote of his, not trash talk, but a well-known quote of his where he does this thing with words and just the insight he has. And maybe it's not as profound as I'm believing it is, but uh, it got me through many grueling practices as a former high school athlete. Uh, Not only did it get me through, but actually it helped me push harder and give more than I thought I could. It prepared me even at the beginning of a practice. Apparently it did the same for him, although we reached very different levels of athletic success. Here's what he said. He says, I hated every minute of training, but I said, don't quit. Suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. The sweat and the pain. The burning lungs and the burning legs, all of it is worth it for the price of becoming a champion. It's all worth it for glory. Now, of course, Ali was only talking about boxing. Paul in Romans is talking about a far weightier glory, an eternal glory. And Romans 8 prepares you to suffer well by promising you glory. Let's pick back up with verse 24 down through verse 30. It says, for in this hope we were saved, uh, that is the hope of redemption of our bodies, which we would have just read in verse 23. It says, now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And of those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I'm not here this morning to wade too far into the controversies that this passage can present between good, God-fearing brothers and sisters. If you are aware of them, feel free to talk to me afterwards. If you are not aware of them, feel free to talk to me afterwards about them. Um, Maybe Ben will hit on some of those challenges next week with Romans 9, 10, and 11. But my goal is to simply say what is said here. First in verse 28, all things work together for good for those who love God. This does not mean that you will win the lottery because you think it's good. It means that when you don't win the lottery, God is working that for your good. And if God is capable of working everything together for your good, then we must acknowledge that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign in total and complete control of everything in the universe, which is wonderful. Because it means these next run of phrases in Romans 8 can be true. If you look down at verse 30, you find the word justified there. In Christ, you are justified. That is what Romans has been explaining to us up to this point. You are or you can be justified by faith in Christ. But how did you get there? Well, before you were justified, you were called. Before you were called, you were predestined. Before you were predestined, you were foreknown. If you look in the Old Testament about this word foreknown, you will find the word known used very intimately. It is the kind of knowledge that happens between spouses. When Paul says you were foreknown, he means that God, before time began, loved a particular people. God's motivation in all of this is his love. And in love, he predestined this particular people to be conformed to the image of his son. It's practically in the word, but to be predestined is to have a destination. To say something is predestined immediately raises the question, for what? And the for what here is to be conformed to the image of his son. That is, in love, God determined before time began to make those he loved Reflect his son, his son who has been the object of his perfect love for all of eternity. Now, in order to do that, God in time has called his people through the gospel. He's justified them by faith in Jesus and will, just as surely as he has done all of those things, glorify them. Now, you may notice that glorified is actually in the past tense. Paul is not meaning to confuse you as if your glory has already fully been reached. His point is that God's word has effectively completed in eternity what has yet to be accomplished here and now. We can be so sure of this. Suffer now and live the rest of your life and the resurrected life to come in glory. But suffering is not just for suffering's sake. 
It isn't just a speed bump. Remember verse 28. All things work together for good for those who love God, including your suffering. Now let's look backwards in Romans one more time and see a similar, similar line of thinking from Paul. Suffering is not only or necessarily evil. It can produce and often does it and should in Christians produce good fruit. So let's look at Romans 5 verses 1 through 5. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering gives way to endurance And endurance gives way to character The word translated here as character Is often translated as to test or to prove So endurance is producing proof in you It is proof of your faith And with that proof comes hope Assurance And hope in what? Assurance of what? Well look at verse 3 Hope in the glory of God You can be sure that your hope will not fall flat because the spirit of God within you testifies to God's love for you. There was a hymn writer of the late 19th and early 20th century named Fanny Crosby. You may not recognize her name, but if you grew up with the hymnal in your hands, you would probably recognize some of her work. I would like to read now uh, some of the words or the words from one song in particular that I can vaguely remember singing in church as a child. And as you listen, I want you to notice how she describes the work of Jesus, the praise she gives to him, and then pay special attention to the very last line where she talks about her wonder and her rapture. Rapture meaning her excessive, over-the-top joy, just unending, boundless joy. So here is the hymn. It says, To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life, an atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. And then the refrain comes. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus his son and give him the glory, great things he hath done. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. O come to the Father, through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he hath done. And here's the final stanza. Great things he hath taught us, great things he hath done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son, But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our rapture, when Jesus we see. She writes about the pure, the high, the great wonder and joy when we see Jesus. Now this line will become more amazing to you when you discover that Fanny Crosby was blind. She was looking forward to seeing Jesus. See, Fanny Crosby, she was not born blind. But she became totally blind as an infant. 
And surely this was a cause of many challenges throughout her life. It is hardly a stretch to label lifelong blindness as a form of suffering. And yet Fanny Crosby could see the great thing that God had done for her and for us all in sending his son to die for our sins. But even more than that, Fanny Crosby rejoiced in her sufferings because she understood that God was bringing about her good through them. Many people lamented that such a talented woman was born blind. They wondered what more she could have accomplished had she been able to see. Listen to her response to these types of statements. Here's what she had to say. She said, when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Fanny Crosby suffered well. Now let's turn our attention back to the close of Romans 8. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Are you suffering? Then he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, even in the midst of your suffering? Are you struggling with sin? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In Christ, the spirit of God has been given to you and bears witness to you of the sovereign God's love that will never let you go. It says, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Rejoice in Christ. You are loved by God. Rejoice that in Christ. You are forgiven by God. And rejoice that in Christ you are a child of God with an inheritance in glory. In Christ, sin and suffering do not stop, but they don't sting. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, give us the assurance that Paul surely wrote Romans 8 to give. That it is not the works of my hands. It is not my own ability to fulfill your law that saves me. That it is not my own strength and power that makes me righteous. That I'm righteous and justified because of Christ's work on my behalf. And that if I am going to put sin to death in my life and walk in a way that pleases you, then I'm going to need you every day, every moment to, to do that. Work in our hearts, God, to uh, make that truth come true um, in our own lives. That that would be our experience. That surely uh, we all suffer. We all sin. And that we would be unafraid to name those things and talk about those things, knowing that you are more than enough to cover those places, that we can look to the cross and see how all of our sin has been dealt with, that we can 
look in our own lives and see you at work by the power of the Holy Spirit and know the gift that you've given to us and, and take that as hope that not only are we not condemned, but we are children, that you love us and, and that glory awaits for us. And we would suffer well knowing and being sure of all these things. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.